Yeshaya to this wonderful edition of Radio Richard. Um, I should tell my my thousands and millions of viewers who are taking this video viral. Adi is a composer, a ranger. He's like me in almost every possible way. He even has a beard, which I think is fantastic. Um, and like me, he also graduated from the Berklee College of Music. Admittedly, you did it about 40 years later than I did because I'm much older than you and he's been working like I have as a composer and arranger and educator for about 40 years and he's worked with fantastic people we're going to talk about today like Prince and Whitney Houston and Aretha Franklin and Burt Bacharach and and Santa Claus and all, all kinds of great people after all that work Adi I can only say you must be ready for a holiday but I enjoy what I'm doing, and uh, I feel fortunate to be able to, to do this for a living. Indeed, indeed, so do I. Um, one of the things that I never get a chance, or I rarely get a chance to do, is talk to people who do the same thing as me. And that is why I wrote this carefully placed bit of advertising here, my book, where I got to interview a lot of great arrangers. And now I get to introduce you and interview another great arranger, which is Adi. So one of the things which I, I love to talk about with other arrangers is the kind of nuts and bolts of the job. You sent me an email where you said, the work for hire that we do in a lot of cases is out of our hands and not always the work we're most proud of. And man, that really hit me right in the forehead. Uh, so. I, I want you to explain a little bit about the process of a working arranger and how it's not, not always about the art. It's about being the guy with with a shovel. Well, I, I don't even know where to start, but, you know, it's like since we went through similar paths with education and stuff, I, I have a feeling that uh, we may have started the same way kind of following the guidelines that we got at school believing that this is the way to do it and uh, any other way is not valid and it took many years to to take everything that we know in one side of the brain to a completely different place and to start everything with the big question mark why am I here? What am I trying to do? How do we start? Sometimes people will ask me, what's, what's your system? What's your process? And I get lost. I simply don't know. I mean, everything is different and everything requires a completely different set of things that um, you always have to spend some time to find some kind of uh, hook to, to, to start with, and then it spreads. And once, once you find some kind of groove, you're in a different world. It's almost like a time warp kind of experience. Yes, I, I, I talk about in my book, I call it a creative intervention. You and I, when we approach a project, first of all, as you said so beautifully, why are we there? Why have they hired us rather than just leave the record the way it is? And it's because they know that the record can be better. 
but they don't know how to make it better necessarily. They've got a general idea. Yeah, it'd be nice to have some strings in there. You know, it's a it's a romantic song. Let's have some strings in there. But they don't they don't know what it is and what and where you know where it should be. And they certainly don't know how to write it. So so we come in and uh, I've been very lucky, and I think you probably have had the same experience where they say to you, "What do you think it needs?" And then you have to make a, a, a judgment. Now, you and I, being of a certain sort of age, we've heard a hell of a lot of music. And also, one thing I notice about arrangers is we don't listen like the punter. You know, we don't listen like the average person. We listen analytically. And so we say, okay, this is this genre of song. The voice is a high voice, so I'm not going to write too much in the high register because it'll get in the way of her voice. You know, we think those those kinds of ways. We make a whole list as we're listening to it, and then and then we say to the client, "Well, you know, I think it should be X." We're not just using intellect; we're using our emotions too because we're thinking, "Well, this is a really beautiful song. I want to express the pain of existence. Oh, my love." or I want to express the humor of the song, and you think of ways to do that. So it's always a, a, a mixture, as you said, of uh, emotion and intellect. Yeah, and you know, there are different kinds of projects and different kinds of clients that uh, you always have to gauge what's the hip factor. I mean, how creative should I be, or do I have my hands tied throughout the project? And uh, it took me time to make peace with this because you know, I, I remember really feeling that my role models were producers. You know, when you think about uh, getting into the business because of people like uh, Dave Grusin and, uh, right. and Quincy Jones, yep. you think, okay, I, I, I'm kind of uh, calling the shots. And uh, in some projects I was, in some projects I was allowed it, and other projects that uh, they try to keep me, you know, in the box. And uh, I'm finally at the place where I'm more comfortable with that. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, of course, in, in interviewing other arrangers, I mean, Jeremy Lubbock told me about doing the uh, Rod Stewart album. And he said that, that uh, Clive Davis had said, if you write any strings above uh, a C above the staff, I'm going to throw the whole thing out because it'll start sounding like film music and I don't want it to sound like film music. And so he had to think of a way to write all those arrangements for the Rod Stewart thing without, you know, that was a, a weird restriction, but he, he had to work within it. The perception that different people have about music and, uh, and certain instruments uh, in particular can, can really be an obstacle sometimes. I also think about the difference between being asked to write the whole arrangement, which in which case, quite frankly, you're producing the record, mm -hmm. uh, or writing to an existing record where you're giving you're given a rhythm section. And they say we want strings and brass and whatever over over what we've got. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about how you conceptualize that type of writing. You know, when you write the arrangement from scratch, you have full freedom of uh, how to get into the song, uh, what needs to happen harmonically. 
um, you know, there's a hot subject among musicians, players in particular, uh, about reharmonizations. Reharmonization is a thing. It's like it's something that some people will approach like, oh, here's the original chord progression. Here's my way. You are trying to figure out a bed of, of harmony that will work so naturally with the phrasing of the melody. Yes. When you do this and you have a good idea of how the artist is going to be phrasing stuff, you are creating a harmony that is not based on this is the original and this is my way, but this is what the artist is screaming to be held by. Yes, yes. And you you approach it from a completely different place. Yes. When you work with a given track, there's nothing you can do about it other than enhancing or destructing or doing other things with strings or horns yes that will compensate for things that you wish you would have Uh, something i hear in your writing and i'm sure it's in mine writing if i if i'm writing to a track and you know it's a c major chord and i think well what can i do if i make it a major seventh chord or something that's that's gonna be not what the artist had intended however if i voice it with if i just put a little nine in there or if i put a little six in there and if i voice it in fourths suddenly you're creating a little extra texture to what they've done but you're not ripping it away into another another world and of course you and i know the difference between country and jazz and and pop and all the different styles and what those harmonic voicings, uh, which is a subject which, you know, the lay public doesn't understand and doesn't need to, but those voicings actually have an emotional uh, response with us and other people, because even one note has an emotional response. And then when you add another note, it's too emotional, but you're, you're making a statement. This is a relationship of a fourth. That's why, you know, so it's a, it's a really fun thing that we, that we do. And it's, it's a lovely creative thing. Now, what you've said brings me to uh, something which I thought of when I was listening to all your great work. Um, I was listening to the Aretha track, You Are My Joy, which I believe you also wrote as well as uh, arranged. Is that true? No, actually that's, <laughs> it's not. And, um, the interesting thing about it is that um, you know the timing is kind of um, interesting sometimes. I just uh, went to a memorial service for my good friend, drummer, musical director Michael Baker, that just passed away. And Michael recruited me back in '99 to arrange for Whitney um, because he was her musical director. Mm. And at some point, Clive Davis called him to. Uh, produce a segment for Aretha Franklin for the Arista anniversary. Mm-hmm. That's where our relationship started. And Aretha wasn't present in, the, I'm talking actually about a different project, but three years later, we recorded a couple of songs with Miss Franklin and she was not present at the session. And when a contractor asked me to give them for credits, I put Michael Baker as the producer and myself as the string arranger. And she didn't 
like the fact that she's not the producer because these were two of her original songs and she was actually at the original session playing and calling the shots for the rhythm right, session. Right. She put herself as a producer and Michael as the composer of the horns and me as the composer of the strings. And somewhere along the line, they saw my name as a composer and right, confused right. it with Right. No. And, and, you know, I, Adi, I really love the idea of calling yourself the composer of the strings, because after all, when you write a melody, you're, you are writing the melody. They can't get around it. Now, the law says that every melody you write and every note you write belongs to the original publisher and songwriter. However, the fact of the matter is, no matter how you uh, describe it by law, that you are composing that music and i i love that I, I would i would have always loved during my career for somebody to say the composer of the brass or the composer of the strings because when you're writing melodies you know it's the thing that i've been fighting for and I, I won't rant too much more about it but i've been fighting for arranger's rights and we have none so <laughs> uh, there we are but, but when you arrange you arrange to the song and you arrange to the melody now, certain singers think it's a really good idea to sing whatever the hell they want and to improvise throughout the entire song. Now, I've got to say, I don't know what you originally were given to, to arrange this to, but in You Are My Joy, she's just, it just sounds like she's improvising the entire way through the song. And of course, because it's Aretha, it sounds marvelous but but in the hands of any other singer and i must say i've had a lot of singers in my in my long and tiring career who just think it's okay to change the melody change the phrasing and it immediately throws your arrangement out the window i have a process that i went through and uh it really started the way you describe it um i was doing a jazz record and um you know i know the tunes i I didn't even have to use lead sheets, but I know how the melodies are going. And I wrote my parts based on the general idea of the melody. And the singer phrased it completely different to the point where, where the horns were really active, she was phrasing pretty much in the same register. And right. then there were empty spaces and stuff. Right. And I got so frustrated at that time wondering okay how did they do all these great albums with Sinatra and all that and I realized you know there was a relationship a continuous relationship between the arranger and the singer that the arrangers knew every nuance that the singers was going to do absolutely and we live in a completely different pay scale right now where we don't have three months retainer to learn that kind of stuff so what's another way of accomplishing this i tried something that i swear by it and i do it all the time when i work on a project with a singer especially if i arrange it from the ground up from you know doing the full arrangement i bring them over here and uh, accompany them with basic set of chords no form in mind just sing the song sing it again sing it in a different key and then I build it uh, to their performance. 
I've done several projects like this mm. and it feels so homogeneous. It's like the band is really complementing the vocals and, uh, and it's a completely different result, different experience. So, uh, mm. you know, that uh, ability to do something with a little bit of technology bypasses the need to to really sit for a couple of months with a singer and yes yes well i i know i know for a fact because my my dad tony romano was from the era of of all of those people and he worked with sinatra he worked with tony bennett he worked with uh a lot of great singers and in fact just because i can i'm going to take this picture over here and i'm going to show you oh wow yeah, this is fun. My dad is over on this side, and yeah. uh, and that's a, a a concert that they did together. And uh, the thing was, in those days, Sinatra used to sit with his piano player, Bill Miller, and he'd go over the song generally how he wanted to do it. And somebody like Nelson Riddle would come and sit with them. He'd listen to that. Then he'd go home and write the arrangement, already knowing how Frank was going to do it. And I must say, I've had that experience. I do the, pretty much the same thing that you just described when I get the chance to, which is not very often, because a lot of times they don't give you the chance to do that. Right. They just say, be there at 1030 tomorrow morning, you know, yeah. but, but when possible, of course, you want to arrange to the singer. But also, you know, some singers are willful, I think you'll agree, and they just want to do what they want to do. And they want to change stuff for the sake of changing it. So, you know, there are all kinds of experiences of it, but but what a lot of people don't understand is that if a melody goes bum 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 you and you write to that, it's it's not gonna work if it's if they suddenly go bum but um did it suddenly you're in a different world. You know, so so that's just for the for the non-arrangers in the world. That's that's the one of the troubles we face. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I also wanted to talk to you about that's related to this is the idea of how much, I mean, we've both been in this a long time, how much popular music and the business and the practice of popular music has changed so drastically over the years to the point where at least here's my, my feeling about it and you tell me what you think. I think arrangers themselves have by technology and by finances been made artistically redundant and also financially impossible because generally i get a lot i mean i don't know about you and probably people say fine but you know people call me and they say we want you to do x and i say okay fine i'll do that and then that'll be x number of dollars and they immediately say goodbye you know because it's too much expensive it doesn't fit in with their budgets yeah, they they think that it's going to be like just p getting some software up and pressing a button and here you are, you know, it's not that. And so the actual job of being an arranger seems to have kind of gone out the window and very few people are still actually getting work in the same way and doing the work in the same way that that you and I have been doing it for so many years. And because of that, I also think that creativity itself is less possible collaboration itself is less possible having eight people in a room writing a song and arranging it at the same time because let's face it here's your drum sound here's somebody over there because going to check to do the bass line it, it, creativity of 
of the of in the manner that it has been done for years and years in popular music is is out the window and uh instead of writing to achieve an emotional impact and make a great you know emotive record we're now making records to satisfy a spotify algorithm how do you feel about that Adi? I don't even know how to be in this world, actually, you know, it's uh, interestingly enough, when when I first moved to Minneapolis and, uh, you know, maybe it wasn't the smartest move because uh, it wasn't an industry city per se. I haven't wrote any music when I came here. I was uh, looking for other things to do. I played some weddings and I uh, taught uh, jazz piano. Eventually, I realized, well, unless I put something myself, I probably will miss my boat here. So, so I put together a big band, um, fortunately of uh, first callers, because I just had an opportunity to do a session and found who the great players were. And um, we started playing in this club uh, Sunday afternoons and uh, the band really took off and we had some nice following and stuff. That's how my my, my uh, writing really established in this town. Nice. And, and I kind of went in that um, mode of jazz arranging. Uh, some local singers hire me to, to produce local jazz records and uh, life was good for a while. Mm. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't until later when uh, Couple people got my name and got me into other things, but but for a while I was in this uh, illusion that oh I can actually make a living writing jazz and uh, some orchestral music and stuff. It wasn't until Michael Baker called me to do arranging for Whitney Houston that I started seeing a completely different side of um, you know something that I completely missed. I remember the first song that he hired me for. I didn't hear any feedback. I uh, got paid and everything, but he took the arrangement, flew to New York, and I didn't hear anything about it. Two years later, I found myself uh, rehearsing for a tour with her, and that song was pulled, and he says, yeah, there's one chord in that song that is not the right chord. You want to check this? And I'm checking, and I'm going, yeah, change the chord, because she was singing a flat six. Yeah over a minor so I just made it a, a flat six chord over over C or over the yeah. root uh -huh. just to to make it a little <laughs> correct harmonically and he said and he said and he says uh, kind of jokingly he says so the chord is more correct right I said yeah okay change it back because I can't explain seven million people that bought the record that they were hearing the wrong chord. <laughs> oh that's funny yeah so you know, I started realizing, you know, there is a whole different way of looking at what we do and uh, the relationship right. between melody and harmony. Ooh. It's like if you create a sound that managed to penetrate the market and become popular, if it's a harmonic mistake, this is the new sound. And you have to Radio Richard! Yeah. 